Well, what is your mission in life? Everyone in this room has a mission. Everyone is living out a mission with objectives that we are trying to carry out. Some of us might be completely unaware of our mission, but trust me, we all have one. Maybe your mission is to be the the greatest dad, the greatest husband that you can be. Or maybe your mission is to earn enough money to to get a sizable retirement account so that you can retire comfortably. Or maybe your mission is to uh, be yourself and do whatever makes you happiest. Perhaps your mission is to have everyone like you. Maybe one of the most prominent missions, especially here in America, is to make a name for yourself, to rise the corporate ladder, to be famous, to make your name great. But I think the question that we all need to consider is, are any of these missions really worth living for? Now, perhaps they're great goals. I'm not detracting from that. They could be very good goals to have. But are they worth our whole value as a person, our whole identity as a person, the whole reason for why we live? Are these missions worth living for? I would say that no, they're not, because because there is a mission out there that is far greater, that is far more valuable, and is not only worth living for, but worth dying for. So what might that mission be? Well, we're going to find out in our reading of John chapter 3, verses 25 through 36. We're going to first be taking a look at what the mission is for those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that we're going to take a look at. And then we're going to take a look at three reasons why we should devote our lives to this mission, why we should be on this mission. And so first, we're going to take a look at what is our God-given mission. And we're going to see that in the first six verses, in verses 25 through 30. So all eyes back in the Bible. We're going to be going back and forth to it. So all eyes in John chapter 20, excuse me, John chapter 3, starting in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's stop right there. And so before we get into what our actual mission is, I think it's important to understand the context of this passage. And so what we see here is that this event, this this, uh, interchange between John the Baptist and his disciples occurs some undisclosed time after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And we see here in the midst of this conversation about purification that this growing sense of bitterness and resentment is coming up from John the Baptist's disciples. They're starting to get a little bitter 
that all these people that were following John are now going to Jesus. They're a little resentful that the people are leaving their teacher to go to this other guy that John pointed to. And so John responds to them in verses 27 through 30. And essentially what he says to them there is, look, do you think that anything that I've done is because of my efforts? Do you think the following that I have is because of something inside of me, because of my hard work? No, what does he say in verse 27? He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Meaning, John's success was not due to John, but was given to John by God. John only had a large following because God gave him that following. God is sovereignly in control of all of those things. And the same is true for us. All of our successes, our accomplishments, our victories, our financial gains, all of them are a gift given to us by God. Even our talents, our talents are given to us by God. I remember being reminded of this when I was moving from uh, engineering into pastoral ministry. And I remember really struggling with this concept of, Lord, you gave me these talents in math and engineering. And now I'm no longer going to be using them. Unsurprisingly, there's not too many calculus problems in sermon preparation, okay? (laughs) The only numbers that I deal with now are verse and chapter numbers. And so this was something that, I know this sounds so nerdy, I was dismayed about. I love math. I'm passionate for engineering. And so I asked God, God, why are you, what am I going to do? What, what about these gifts? What about these talents? And I remember God reminding me that, look, my gifts, my talents, all of them, including math and engineering, my success as a, an accomplished circuit designer, all of that is a gift given to me by God. That my talents are on loan to me. My talents are not my own. They're God's. And God has given me those talents to use them as he sees fit for as long as he sees fit for his purpose and for his glory. Now, sure, I had to work in order to use my talents in order to, be, to gain success. That's true. But I would have never had success in the first place had God not given me those talents. In the same way, Gordon Ramsay's or Rachel Ray would not be successful chefs had God not given them the ability to cook. Michael Phelps would have never been a successful Olympic athlete had God not given him those athletic abilities. And in the same way, John the Baptist would not have had one follower had God not given him that follower. And so John is not surprised by this change of events. He understands, look, God gave me this following for his purposes. And if he wants to diminish it for his purposes, well, then so be it. All glory be to God. And so this is what he tells his disciples first. But then he doesn't end there. He continues his response, reminding them of his mission. He says his mission was always to point to the Christ. He says emphatically and reminds them that he is not the Christ, but has come before the Christ. And John tries to get this concept across by using this wedding illustration. 
Now, I think in order to fully appreciate his illustration, we need to understand what a wedding looked like back then during John's time. And so we have obviously the bride and the bridegroom, and you have now the friend of the bridegroom, which we would call the the best man. And the best man, he was in charge of a lot of the planning and logistics of the wedding. And he was also in charge of getting the bride to the ceremony to wait for the arrival of the bridegroom. And once the bridegroom came, the best man kind of faded into the background. His job was done. His joy was in seeing the the union of the bride to the bridegroom. And so in the same exact way, John, who's the friend of the bridegroom, his mission is to point the bride, that is God's people, to the bridegroom, that's Jesus. And he's done it. He's done it, right? He declares that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has pointed people to the Christ. And so as a result of this, his ministry is complete. And as is his joy in seeing the arrival of the Messiah, this is what brings him joy. And so because the bridegroom, that is Jesus, has come for his bride, that is the church, John necessarily will fade into the background. Jesus must become greater. John must become less. Now, something that I love doing, I love at night when it's a clear sky and you can see all the stars in all their brightness, right? Especially if you're on the beach, it's a full moon. It is just gorgeous to see the bright moon, the bright stars in the sky. But something that we all know is that as dawn approaches, as morning approaches, the sun rises and all the stars and the moon, no matter how bright they were just a few hours ago, they fade. We no longer see them, right? The reason for this is because the sun is brighter. It's greater. And in the same exact way, John the Baptist was a bright star. But when the sun came, the S-O-N, when the son of man came, John naturally had to fade into the background. Jesus is the light of the world. He's brighter. He's greater. He's the one to take preeminence. Jesus must become greater. John must become less. Now, our mission is very similar to that of John's. Our mission is to exalt Jesus, to make his name great. As Pastor Ryan preached a couple, probably months ago now at this point, on John chapter 1, 19 through 28, he said, we're not the point, but we're to be pointers to the Christ. Our mission in life is to point others to the bridegroom, to point others to Jesus, to make his name great. And as a result of making his name great, as a result of being on that mission, we naturally will make ourselves less. Our successes, our wants, our desires, our intentions, all of them will become less important than fulfilling our mission to make Jesus great. Jesus must become greater. We must become less. And so our mission is similar to that of John the Baptist. We are called to be pointers to the Christ. We are called to make Jesus great, to elevate his name above every other name, even at the cost of making ourselves less and less important. 
And so now for the rest of this passage in verses 31 through 36, we're going to be taking a look at the reasons why, why we should go on this mission, why we should devote our lives to making Jesus great. And so let's take a look at the first reason, which we'll see in verse 31. So all eyes back in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 31. It says this, he who comes from above is above all. Lost my place. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So let's stop right there. So the first reason, the first reason why we go on this mission to make Jesus great is because he is supreme and he's above all. Jesus is the one who is above all. In verse 31, it says, he who is above, that is Jesus, is above all. He's above all things. Jesus is the only one from heaven. And so he's the only one that is above all things. Now, by contrast, in this verse, we see that everyone else, everyone other than Jesus is from the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That means me, you, John the Baptist, everyone, everyone except Jesus is from the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Now, oftentimes it can be confused that that this is talking about being worldly or sinful, but that's not the use of earth and earthly here in this context. Rather, what John is trying to get across more is uh, our human finiteness, our limitations. And so this makes sense to us, right? We are limited in our capacity Our lives are limited. Our abilities are limited. We can only do so much. We can only comprehend so much. Our lives are finite. Now, by contrast, Jesus, Jesus is above all. He is supreme. He is infinite. He is unlimited. And so why do we exalt Jesus? Well, it's because he's supreme, He is infinitely better than the best that this world could ever produce. We would never exalt anything inferior over something superior. I would never exalt canned spam over a perfectly cooked steak. (laughs) I would never elevate the random mashing of keys on a piano over the beautiful composition of a classical work by some world-renowned piano player. I would never make great the screech of a howler monkey over the beautiful voice of a professional vocalist. And so in the same way, why would we ever make great something of the earth over something from above? Jesus is supreme He's above all things. He is worthy. He is worthy to be exalted. Jesus must become greater. We must become less. And so we've seen that our mission, our mission is to make Jesus great, to point others to the the majesty of our Lord and Savior. 
And the reasons why we do that, the first that we saw is because Jesus is supreme and he's above all. And the second reason we're going to see in verses 32 and 34. So all eyes back in the Bible, we're going to be looking at now John chapter 3, verses 32 through 34. It says this, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Let's stop right there. And so the second reason why we go on this mission, the second reason why we devote our lives to making Jesus great is because Jesus' testimony is trustworthy and true. Everything that Jesus says, everything that Jesus teaches is absolutely true. And we see here in the first half of 32 that, that Jesus uh, uh, bears witness to everything that he's literally seen and heard. So Jesus has literally experienced the things that he is talking about. He is not relying on secondhand or thirdhand information. He is relying on firsthand, first account experience. Jesus has literally seen and heard what he talks about, what he speaks about we are more likely to believe a first-hand account over a second or third-hand account. And that, likewise, makes Jesus' testimony more trustworthy. Now, you remember the game Telephone or Whisper Down the Lane? You know how someone whispers something into your ear, and then you turn and have to take that message and whisper that into someone else's ear and so on and so forth? And usually the message gets so distorted, right? It starts off with something like, I don't know, the, the trees, leaves are green, and it ends up being the three B's are mean, right? Something completely different from what it started out to be. Now here's the, here's the rub. Jesus is not playing a game of telephone in which he's fifth in line in the chain. He's first in line. What he is saying is authoritatively and absolutely true. He has firsthand knowledge, firsthand experience. What he declares is what is truth. Jesus' testimony is trustworthy. Furthermore, those who receive Jesus' testimony, those who believe what Jesus says, can verify that what Jesus says is true. And his testimony is true because Jesus speaks and does only what God says and does. This is at the heart of verses 33 and 34. And I think another verse is going to really help us to understand and solidify this concept. So turn one page over to your right in John chapter 5, verse 19. This is going to be another thing that Jesus says that's going to help us to understand this concept. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 19. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, which once again... That means whatever is about to be said is 100% without a doubt certain. As certain as the sun is going to rise tomorrow, certain. Okay? So truly, truly, I say to you, the sun can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so what we see here is that Jesus exactly and perfectly follows the will of the Father. When God speaks, Jesus speaks. 
He doesn't deviate from the speech. When God acts, Jesus acts. He doesn't deviate and does what he wants to do. Jesus perfectly follows the will of the Father. And if we turn back to our passage now in John 3, that's at the heart of what it says in verse 34. For verse 34 in John chapter 3 says, For he whom God has sent, that's Jesus, utters the words of God. Jesus is literally speaking the very words of God. And so, if you believe that God is true, and if you believe that Jesus is literally speaking God's words, then everything that Jesus says must be true. There's no other choice. Now, conversely, if you, if you do not receive Jesus' testimony is true, if you do not believe what Jesus is saying is true, then in effect, you are declaring that God is not true. In fact, you'd be calling God a liar. And so if Jesus' testimony is true, if he really speaks what God speaks, then boy, he is absolutely someone worth listening to and following be foolish not to. It would be just as foolish as not listening to a fireman when you're caught in a burning building, just so it would be to not listen to Jesus when he speaks. So why do we go on this mission? Why do we make Jesus great? Well, because his testimony is trustworthy and true. He literally speaks from firsthand knowledge, from firsthand account of what he's seen and heard. He literally utters the very words of God. If you're seeking truth today, you're not going to find a testimony more true than that of Jesus. It is the most trustworthy thing in all the universe to stake your claim on. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy to be exalted. He must become greater. We must become less. So our mission I'm going to repeat this over and over again so it is solidified into our brains. Our mission is to make Jesus great, to point others to Christ. And the reason why we devote our lives to this mission is because Jesus is supreme. And we just saw that it's because Jesus' testimony is trustworthy and true. And now we're going to take a look at the third reason that we see from this passage, and it's going to be in the last two verses, in verses 35 and 36. So all eyes back in the Bible as we read the last two verses of chapter 3. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the first thing that we see, the reason why we exalt Jesus is because He has the ultimate authority. He has authority over all things. It says here in verse 35 that the Father has given all things into his hand. Now, just as God has given me and blessed me with Aidan and Sophia, my two children, and I have authority over them, so too, in an infinitely greater capacity, God has given all things to Christ. Everything that creeps and crawls, that walks, swims, and soars, all of creation 
has been given to Christ. And so Christ has authority over all things. And I think a display of that authority is shown in verse 36. For Jesus has authority even over eternal destinations. Those who believe in Jesus will have, presently have, eternal life. But those who do not believe in Jesus, those who disobey him, will not see eternal life in heaven. And the reason why they will not see eternal life is because they still remain condemned if they do not believe in Jesus. We saw this two weeks ago when we studied verses 17 and 18 in John chapter 3. As a refresher, John chapter 3 verse 17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now the reason why Jesus didn't need to condemn the world was because it was condemned already. The sobering reality, and people don't like hearing this, and I don't enjoy saying it, but the sobering reality is that everyone born into this world stands condemned before God because of their sin. And for those who do not believe in Jesus, then the terrifying wrath of God still looms ominously over their head. Think about it in this way. Let's say that there's a group of people who are born with a life-threatening disease. And let's say that there was a cure for that disease, and some people received that cure, and for whatever reason, other people did not receive the cure. Those that receive the cure for this disease, the symptoms will no longer be there, and they no longer have to fear that they're going to die from this fatal disease. But on the flip side, conversely, those who, do not, who did, not receive the cur- did not receive the cure, they're still going to experience the symptoms. They're still going to experience the effects. And they still have to deal with one day the reality that they will die from this life-threatening disease. Now, in the same fashion, those who receive Jesus as the cure for their sin, the wrath of God, the condemnation that hangs over their head is removed. They no longer have to fear facing that at the end of the age. But for those who do not receive Jesus as the cure for their sins, then the terrifying, horrifying wrath of God still looms precariously over their heads. Their condemnation has not been removed. So then the pressing question becomes, well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it's submitting to Jesus and his authority and his supremacy. It is receiving Jesus' testimony and is true. It's receiving the testimony that Jesus came to die in our place, to bear our sin, our shame, our guilt, to take the full wrath of God that we deserved so that the wrath of God could be removed from us. That's what it means to believe and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And as a result of believing in Christ in this capacity, our lives will naturally change. We will see that our lives become one of obedience to God and to his word, 
Just take a look at verse 36 again, shall we? The first half of 36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now the second half of the verse is going to be a complete contrast to the first half of the verse. And so we'd expect that John would say, whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But it doesn't say that. It says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. John is very distinctly making this point, that disobedience to the Son is in direct conflict with, in direct contrast with, believing in the Son. And so when you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then your life is going to be marked by obeying Jesus. And conversely, those who do not believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, their life is going to be marked with disobedience to the Son. Now, full stop, to be very clear, I am by no means saying that our obedience earns our way into heaven. No, it is by faith and by faith alone that the, the wrath of God, our guilt, our condemnation is removed from us. It is only by believing in Jesus that we can be saved and see eternal life. But, but we cannot divorce faith from obedience. What we believe and then subsequently how we live out our lives are intertwined. You can't just accept half of Jesus. You can't say, hey, Jesus, you know, this terrifying wrath of God, that doesn't sound too fun. Can you take that away from me? But this whole obeying you thing, that seems a little too difficult for me. We're good? That's not how it works, quite unfortunately. Rather, to embrace Jesus is to embrace him both as Savior and Lord of your life. And so why do we go on this mission to make Jesus great? Well, it's because of his authority. He is authority over all things, and he has authority to give eternal life to those who believe in him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is worthy to be exalted. He must become greater. We must become less. And so this morning, what we've seen, we've seen the mission of the Christ follower. The mission of the Christ follower is to make Jesus great, to point others to the Lord and Savior. And this happens even at the expense of us becoming less, our status, our influence, our success, all of that becoming less important in order to exalt and make Jesus great. And we saw all the reasons for why we do this. We do this because Christ is supreme and above all things. His testimony is trustworthy and true. And he has all authority, authority even over our eternal destinations. And so if you find yourself here this morning as a Christian, then your mission, whether you choose to accept it or not, is to make Jesus great, not to make yourself great. It's to exalt Jesus, not to exalt yourself. It is to point others to Jesus, not to point others to yourself. 
He must become greater. We must become less. Now, what might this look like? Let's think about this. If your life was a TV show, would Jesus be the star of the show? Or would you be the star of the show? Jesus is the star of our show when we prioritize him over other things. When we read our Bible, when we use our God-given gifts to bless others, when we tell others about Christ, when we're not ashamed of the gospel to tell others about the glory, the majesty of our Lord and Savior. We show that Jesus is the star of our show and how we respond to other people and how we give glory to God when things go right and we give glory to God when things don't go right. We show that God is the star of our story and how we react to people, how you respond to someone who cuts you off on the parkway, how you respond to children when they get on your nerves, when someone insults you, hurts you, wounds you. How do you respond? Do you respond with anger? Do you respond defensively? Do you respond pridefully? Or do you respond in a Christ-like manner with grace, with compassion, with patience and humility? Is Jesus the star of your story? Or are you? Now, trust me, I'm preaching to myself as well, okay? I belong to be in the congregation just as much as you all. Lord knows how many times daily that he needs to kick me off the throne of my heart so that Jesus can rightfully sit where he belongs. I know how difficult it is to want to steal the spotlight from Christ and to receive glory for my name and to make my name great. But brothers and sisters, our mission, our mission is to make Jesus great. Jesus must increase, we must decrease. And I can say with, with certainty that when we actually follow this mission, when we actually glorify God with our lives, when we make him great, we get the greatest sense of joy and satisfaction that we will ever have. We will never have, we will get temporary joy when we exalt ourselves. We'll have eternal joy when we exalt Christ. Now, if you find yourself here today as not a believer, as someone who, who is not on this mission to make Jesus great, then my plea for you this morning is that you would turn, that you would believe and trust in Jesus, that you would see him as supreme, as true, as authoritative. Would you see that he is someone worth living for? Would you trust in Christ that he has come to save you from the wrath, save you from the condemnation that looms over your head? Would you please turn and believe in Jesus this morning? Brothers and sisters, as the story of our lives unfold, we are all pointing to someone or to something. Who are you exalting? Who are you lifting up? Who are you pointing to?
my prayer is that all of us, myself included, would be exalting, lifting up, and pointing to King Jesus. He is worthy to be praised. He must become greater. We must become less. Amen. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we, we need you. We depend upon you, God. And we ask, God, for forgiveness for the many ways that we try to steal the spotlight from you, for the many ways that we try to elevate ourselves over you who is supreme above all. Forgive us, God, for the many ways that we seek to make our name great as opposed to your name great. Would you give us the courage, God, to go forth from this place to make your name great, to point others to your majesty and to your glory. And Father, for those who, who are here this morning who don't know you, I pray that you may send your spirit into their hearts, that they would come to know you, that you would transform their hearts so that they would believe and trust and receive your testimony as true, that they would come to exalt your name above all names. Heavenly Father, we need you and we love you. We pray all of these things in the mighty and the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.